The Gospel portion is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 16. It's a tradition that we stand when we hear our Master teach, as we honour the Messiah, our King, and the Good News. The Good News according to St. Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, the gospel this Sunday... Is, uh, is really the, one of the high points. It's the high point in the ministry of Jesus. This is Peter's proclamation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and he's the Son of the living God. It's a confession. We call it the Confession of Peter. And that confession has gone all around the world and has affected countless millions of people. From the northern most part of the Holy Land, Jesus is now going to set his face towards Jerusalem, where he's going to challenge the Sadducees, and he'll go to the cross, and he'll redeem the world. And I think that uh, the lectionary was a little unkind in that it broke up Matthew 16, because the, uh, what they do on, on Caesarea Philippi carries on till next week, and they they really are joined together. So this sermon is actually in two parts. This is part one, and part two is going to be preached by my brother over there. So if you're uh, in town, come and join us. If not, follow the podcast. But they're together. They're linked. The declaration of who Jesus is, and then Jesus declaring who He is as the suffering Messiah. But looking at the themes that are in this week's readings, Exodus, the Isaiah passage, and uh, the gospel. And I thought I could see definitely a strong theme of deliverance that, was, uh, that occurred even though all the situations around were dark. Hope, redemption in places of darkness and confusion, and sometimes even in death. So in Exodus, Moses is, uh, going to go, is, is born in a period of suffering and persecution and uncertainty. 
yet he'll participate in the deliverance of Israel from out of Egypt. And Jesus is going to challenge us in a very dark and confused place. Who do you say that I am? And then he's going to set his face towards redeeming the world that he loves so much. So let's begin with our Exodus portion. Exodus in Hebrew is uh, called Shmot, as a, as a book, means names, which is very interesting that in today's portion, almost no one has a name, okay? Moses, how, most of the time in the, in the story, is just called the baby, and when he finally does get a name, it's not even a Hebrew name, it's an Egyptian name, and his parents don't have names. Pharaoh hasn't got a name. The lady who rescues him, the daughter of Pharaoh, doesn't have a name. Everybody seems to lack an identity. In fact, it's, it's in the book of Shmot, in names, that Moses actually says, who are you? And God will give him his name. The people who do have names, interestingly, are the midwives in the story. And they, uh, as fearers of God, they know who they are. And they're not going to listen to a bad king. Well, the story of Exodus begins by informing us that there has been a change in the political hierarchy of Egypt. A new king has arisen to whom Joseph means nothing. And uh, archaeologists you know, will, will always admit that you know, dating isn't an exact science. And so uh, scholars have great fun uh, arguing about the date of the Exodus. Not that it didn't happen, just when it actually occurred, how big it was, who was involved, things like that. Well, one, uh, one argument is that uh, there's a, a group of scholars who would say that, that the, uh, the story of Joseph that we find in Genesis occurs during a reign of Egypt by the Hyksos. Who are the Hyksos, I hear you ask? Well, they are, um, are non-Egyptian people. They're actually a Semitic tribe, uh, sometimes called the Shepherd Kings. They seem to have migrated into Egypt and taken over uh, the, the lower area, the, the, the Delta area, and they were ruling the Egyptians. But as Semitic peoples, descendants of Shem, they're ruling Egypt, who are the descendants of Ham. They happen to speak Canaanite, among other languages, so it might be no surprise that they actually favored uh, the, 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 the 12 tribes and Joseph, who became second only to their, their leader. But they didn't survive. The Egyptians took them, recaptured their, their country, and they weren't favorable towards the Israelites anymore. Their mortal enemy uh, were the Hittites, who were ruling Asia Minor, parts of Libya, uh, sorry, parts of Lebanon, Syria, Israel. They, were, they might engage in an international war. And then these slaves, Israel weren't the only slaves in, in Egypt, might partake uh, and join in the fight. That's what the text tells us. They're a little nervous. So they enslaved the people and they put them to work. And that leads us into uh, the, the birth of Moses, where the king has ordered the destruction 
of all the male children. Now there's a midrash, a story, and it's uh, recorded in the in Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer in uh, chapter 48. If anybody wanted to check, it's a, it, Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer is a bit late, sixth century, but it's recording a tradition that the magicians had had a dream and a vision in Egypt, and they had said to Pharaoh, there's going to be an Israelite child who's going to be born, a male child, who's going to redeem Israel from out of Egypt. And then to stop that, he orders the death of all the, uh, the innocents. Does that story sound familiar? Jesus is often portrayed in the Gospels as the new Moses. And again, another mad king knows of a prophecy of a child that is going to be born. So let's, let's sort that one out. Didn't work against Moses, certainly didn't work against Jesus. Eh, you know, try again, I guess. Well, Moses ends up having a miraculous birth story. In fact, many of the heroes of God have miraculous birth stories. It's almost like a characteristic you have to have. Samson is a miraculous birth story. He could, the parents couldn't have kids. Uh, Samuel, miraculous birth story. Jesus, obviously, miraculous birth story. And if you go into many of the um, Jewish legends about each of the characters in the Bible, many of them also can have a, some sort of miracle or a, a salvific event around their birth. Moses is on a river. Everybody else is drowning in the river. But he ends up in the very house of his enemy. Not that he probably knows. And the daughter of Pharaoh sees this child, somehow takes pity on him, has mercy and compassion, and will protect the child and give him a, an Egyptian name, a name of royalty, because Egyptian pharaohs often contained the name Moses in them. For example, the pharaoh Thutmose and the pharaoh uh, Ahmose. These are derivatives of Moses inside Egyptian names, because it's an Egyptian name. It happens to sound like, in Hebrew, Moshe. That's actually what it does sound like in Hebrew. But it sounds something like Meshe, from there, right? But it's actually a, an Egyptian name. And I know that um, you've probably all seen the movie The Prince of Egypt. Yes? Okay, this is where Val Kilmer comes down from the mountain and gives us the Ten Commandments. And it's always nice that he's, Moses is always nice and handsome like that. Well, Prince of Egypt. So now we all assume that Moses was indeed a Prince of Egypt. Nowhere in the text does it say that. In fact, it kind of says the opposite. Moses goes out in chapter 2, next week's reading, chapter 2.14, probably to find some identity. And he encounters some Hebrews arguing, and he tries to stop them. And they, are, they, they challenge him by saying, who put you in charge over us? Which would make no sense if he was a prince of Egypt. Who put you in charge over us? Uh, me. I'm a prince. Thank you for trying. It's possible that his mother actually sheltered him. But um, Moses comes to us from a time of darkness, from a time of desperation, from a time of suffering, and he will, he will bring redemption.
And that pattern that gets set up definitely shows up in the Gospels. For our prophet, the prophetic portion, Isaiah is, is preaching to a community and they're in trouble. It's also a time of darkness and confusion. And he says, look to the rock, using the word sur. And if, if you said, who's the rock? I know most of us would say Jesus because we're Christians. But if you're thinking in biblical Hebrew, who's the rock? God is always a rock. God is the tzur. He's something that is stable and unbreakable and old as earth itself. And uh, the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, um, didn't like translating God as a rock. So whenever they came to the words, God is a rock, they always said, God is a king. Maybe because at the time when they were translating, they, there was a, a concern that... Um, this might lead into idolatry. People might actually start worshipping rocks, or maybe they were at the time. And so they said, God is a king. But we often call him a rock, a sure foundation, and a redeemer. Interestingly, this passage, the rock is Abraham. He's a hero. He's one of our... Uh, uh, He's a saint, for put it into a better word. He's a holy man from the past. And we're to be reminded of our sacred history so that when we're in times of trouble and, and darkness, yes, look to Jesus. Yes, look to God. But also look to sacred history. Look to see how God has dealt with His people in the past. Because if God is the, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then that, the way He dealt with Israel in the past is the way He's going to deal with creation and the universe right now. And He never gave up on His people. When things were going dark, He brought the light. When things looked hopeless, He heard their cry. When they needed a Redeemer, they got one. When they needed a prophet, they got a lot. When they needed kings, they had them. And uh, we often, often in, in, in liturgical traditions, we get a, you know, people say, why do you keep saying the same things again and again and again? Well, because it's very useful. It really helps with memory. So we live in a world that's very confused and throws lots of voices at us. And some of them are enticing. Some of them are very seductive, and some of them even seem believable. But it's really important that when things are dark and confusing, that we go ground ourselves in, in what God has done, ground ourselves in sacred history, and remind ourselves of some of the heroes of faith. Look to Abraham. We are all sons of Abraham. One other thing I like about this prophetic portion is um, the prophet says that I lift up my eyes to the heavens. I look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish. The earth will wear out like a garment. And its inhabitants will die like flies. That doesn't sound so crash hot for a future, does it? And yet, he says, 
but my salvation will last forever. There's always hope with, with God. There's going to be a deliverance from a time of darkness. With that as background, then we come to our gospel portion, where Jesus takes his disciples and he heads north. Now, things are going really well for Jesus. Okay, he has got his disciples, he's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been casting out demons, he's been challenging the authority, no one can beat him in theological discussions, there's not a disease he can't cure. And if you run out of food, watch. And he takes his disciples north to a region, could even be questionable, even at best, to the, to the area of the, the tribe of Dan, to the region of what we call Caesarea Philippi. Now, geography is theology. I hope you've heard that from here before. Location, location, location. Where things happen are really important. Jesus could have asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? On the beaches of Tel Aviv. Could he not? We're having a little summer break. It's been a bit of hard work. Let's go have some pina coladas. Oh, by the way, when you're getting me one, who do people say that I am, Peter? But no, it's north. Why north, I hear you ask? Great question. North becomes very important in the book of Leviticus, which happens to be the best book of the Bible, in my opinion. Leviticus 1 verse 11 says, when you come to make your offerings in the tabernacle, offer your sacrifices to the north of the altar. And that's it. Doesn't give you a reason why. Just, it does. Offer your sacrifices to the north. So if you guys are really good Jews, and we're going to go worship the Lord, and we've brought our offerings. Where are we going to offer our sacrifices? To the west? To the south? No, we will always do it to the north. Always. And then our son's going to ask, Dad, Abba, why are we doing it here? Why can't we do it over there? There's something special about the north. And the north begins to take on a, a nuance, a place where the redemption begins to start. The prophet says, it's you the lands of Zebulon and Naphtali, you, some of you northern tribes, you're going to see the great light first. And then you'll go south. Jesus takes his people north to a region which uh, has, a, has, a, has a lot of issues. Anybody been to Caesarea Philippi? Today it's called uh, Banyas. Okay, yeah, Banyas. Banyas it's, it gets its name from uh, the Greek god Pan, used to be called Panias, the Greek god Pan, who was a sort of like a satire, half man, half goat, uh, the, the Greek god of, of nature and um, trees and, and things like that. But uh, he was the one, one of the many gods that were being worshipped in this region. When you go to this place, uh, Banyas, which used to be called Panias until the early Islamic period, when, uh, when it was conquered uh, uh, by, the, by the Muslims, uh, Arabic doesn't have a P sound. 
So P's became B's. And it stuck. So we, we kept it. And um, in this place, there's a giant rock. It's huge. It's 100 feet high, and it's 500 feet wide. And it's got a limestone cave that reaches down into a uh, spring that bubbles up and makes a god-awful noise. And uh, it's one of the tributaries, one of the sources of the Jordan. It's not the only one. It's, it's one of them. And uh, eventually gets its way down into the Galilee. And the, they used to throw virgins down this thing to appease the gods. I'm, I'm never 100% sure what, what gods had to do uh, with young ladies, but let's kill them anyway, and that'll make them happy. But this is the nature god that's being worshipped here. And they called that hole in the ground the gates of Hades. So you have a rock, you have the gates of Hades, you've got a nature god being worshipped, there's a bunch of other gods being worshipped there. One of them was a temple to Caesar Augustus. This is, uh, many of the Caesars believed that they were sons of God, right? That they were divine beings, which really bears a little nuance to, to, to Peter's confession, doesn't it? You're the son of the living God, not that guy. It's not humans trying to become God, a self-deification. Another god that's being worshipped there was the goddess Nymph, who was the god of sex and immorality and pleasure, and uh, all kinds of crazy stuff happened in her temple, you can imagine. And there was another temple just off to the side, the temple of Nemesis, who was the Greek god for vengeance. So when you wanted to take revenge, you could go there and, and uh, give a votive offering, and your enemy might kill over and die. So... The world systems are at the base of this big rock. Nature, self-deification, sexual immorality, vengeance and, 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 and murder. And it's not that the Gentile pagans were uh, godless. They had a lot of gods. They had so many, they're confused which one to worship. There's a lot of confusion in paganism. Who's actually up there? What are they doing? How do we approach them? Confusion, darkness, lies, certainly not the truth. And it's in this location, with all of those world systems, that Jesus comes and says, all right, who do people say that I am? And he gets a bit of an interesting response. Well, some say John the Baptist, even though he's dead. Okay, when, you, when you're in the Bible and you're dead, you're not really dead. Okay, Samuel came back to life for a brief moment. And he's the only prophet who actually prophesied after he was dead. So he's got a bit of a, bit of a claim to fame. Jeremiah who in the book of Maccabees shows up to give Judah Maccabee a golden sword. Okay? So uh, Elijah, we know he's coming back. We've got definite prophecies about him. But one of the other prophets that, from some tradition that we've got, they're confused. No one knows who Jesus is. And you know what? That is exactly what happens in our world today, isn't it? 
the world, the, the, the secular world, doesn't know how to relate to Jesus. Is he, a, is he a good guy? Is he a good teacher? Is he, um, you know, is he, is he a bad guy? Is he actually not, not, not telling the truth? We don't, does he actually really exist? Is he a prophet? Is he not a prophet? Is he a messianic character? Or is he just a crazy Buddhist who happened to show up in the Middle East? They're all wrong. But Jesus asks a very important question, which is still uh, a question we all have to answer. And he does it in a very specific location. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it. He gets to say that incredible statement. You're the Messiah. And you're the son of the living God. I know who you are. Now, that's an incredible statement coming from a Jewish monotheist. Remember, all the people who first believe in Jesus are all Jewish monotheists. This isn't some pagan invention. It's in, a, it's in a dark and confused area. But the deliverance starts. Jesus is going to set his face towards Jerusalem and redeem the world. It's in a dark and confused area. That's when you say out loud, Jesus is Lord. It's in a dark and confused time when you actually can bring the light and the hope that this, this, this world needs. It's often in a very dark time when we ourselves cry out to God. We often cry out to God when we're at our weakest, when we're most confused, when we actually need Him to bring the light. And what I really like about the Bible is it says, when you seek me with all your heart, you will, you will find me. That is a very, very good promise of the Lord. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, the ecclesia. This is the first time that word ever actually appears in the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean a building, although it's got buildings. We happen to be meeting in a building. We like to meet in buildings. They're really good focal points. And if you're going to build a building for God, build a good one. Don't ever, ever give Him your second best. That's why the old churches and ancient cathedrals look so grand. You were never going to build a second-rate building for God. It's only going to be the best. But the ecclesia, the kehila, the assembly, the new community that Jesus is building and is forming, it's going, to, it's going to have Jews in it. Of course it is. They're the ones looking at him right now. But as the prophets have always proclaimed, it's always going to have Gentiles in it too. And this new community is going to expand. And it's going to bring deliverance and hope and redemption to all dark places of this world, to all confused nations. And nothing can stop it. The gates of Hades. That's not going to be able to stop it. Satan has been unable to stop the gospel going around the world. And that is a good thing. And in this new community, and I like the way Jesus does it, upon this rock, okay, right at the top. Now, there are some denominations that actually took that quite literally. So the Greek Orthodox built a church on top. And uh, the, the Catholics decided that the rock was Peter, so wherever he died, they built a church right on top of him too, okay, in the Basilica in Rome. Uh, for the Protestants, you know, there's a, there's a sort of, well, let's just focus on, you know, his declaration. Okay? It's probably a bit of all of the above. Okay? You know, you, when, you, when you usually say, when you come to a fork in the road in the Jewish tradition, take it. Okay? So... Upon this rock, I will build my church, my community. 
And he gives the community the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the ability for binding and loosing. Now, those are Hebrew concepts and are unfortunately horribly misunderstood. There are some traditions that thought the keys of the kingdom, well, that was just a Peter, and uh, so let's have a nice big flag and, and a white field with two crosses, and that'll be the, the flag of the papal states. But it's a Jewish term. And in, the, in, in, uh, in Jewish tradition, there are two keys to the kingdom of heaven. There is a key to your outer court and a key to your inner court. The outer court are your hands, your deeds. It's your faith in action. The things you do to put your love of God into practice. And then the other key is the internal one to your heart. Where you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But you've got to have both keys. You can say you love God, and if you do nothing about it, you don't help anyone, faith without works is correct. And if you're a really good person, you've got great, great deeds. I mean, you are so, so good. There's, you can't fault you in your generosity and your love and your commitment to people. You, you know, you're a tree hugger. You're fantastic. But if you don't love God, what does it do for you? Nothing. To the keys of the kingdom, to the new community. Make sure you have both. And then, binding and loosing. And this is where, any Pentecostals here? Come on, my people. You know, yes. Okay, we, we love a bit of binding and loosing, right? I love, I, I think we, we've, we've taken a nuance uh, a little too far, okay? Like, we only ever think of binding and loosing as, I bind you, in the, uh, Satan, in the name of Jesus. You know, Satan has been bound so many times, I can't figure out why he's still free. Okay? I don't know. The number of times that guy has been put in prison and he's still walking around like a raging lion. I have a suspicion we've not quite understood what binding and loosing is. It's a Hebrew concept. It mean, it's p permitting and not permitting. Your community can make your own halakha. How you put your faith into practice, how you're going to worship the Lord, what dress codes you're going to have. So if you happen to belong to a church that it requires you to wear hats and head coverings, if you don't wear a hat or a head covering when you go to church, you are in rebellion. And if you don't like head coverings, what's the answer? Change church. It's not rock and science. Go to the ones where they all wear Hawaiian t-shirts. You'll, you'll knock yourself out. I happen to really appreciate the, the community I'm a part of. I'm part of something bigger than me. And I'm linked through tradition, the voice of our ancestors, all the way back to Abraham, the rock that our prophet wants us to remind us of who we are. And to that sacred history and all of the holy people that came and uh, as a cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 11 reminds us of. And so that, that call that Jesus has, that question, who do you say I am, is something that doesn't go away. We all have to answer that. Who do you think Jesus is. We live in a world that has so many voices and is so confused and doesn't have any answers and it, it grasps at new truths every week and they all fail. 
But there is something solid. There is something that brings light in a dark world. There is something that speaks truth and clarity in times of confusion. And it starts often where it seems the darkest. So if you're in a dark place, if that's where you are, if you're confused, then, then, then tonight, make sure that when you go home and pray, you pray, Lord, reveal yourself to me. That's all you got to say. Because he will. If that's an honest prayer of the heart, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And then you can, you're invited to join the ecclesia, the kehala, the new community that Jesus is building. And this community speaks into confusion. This, this community brings light into darkness and hope and, 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 and faith where there's doubt and joy even when, when it seems like the world has gone wrong. And nothing, nothing can stop it, not even hell. And that is very good news. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.